You're listening to Notes from Norwich. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to, um, what is this, episode five? I've lost count. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Episode five. We'll call it episode five. If we're wrong, then we'll hear about it in the tweets, I'm sure. Um, But we're back with notes from Norwich, our exploration, our deep dive into the revelations of Julian of Norwich. I'm Chris. I'm one of the three hosts on this show, and I'm also here with Jan. How are you, Jan? I'm good. How are you? You're, you're talking from your car? I am. Recording from my car because I have a <laughs> puppy who's going wild. Yeah, we all are making do in this uh, in this time. And Marguerite, how are you? Yeah, I'm great. Thank you. I am recording from a room. You are. <laughs> you're not in a car. I'm not in a car. Okay. I'm in my basement here with my array of saints. I should bring Julian up a little bit closer. She might want to listen in. Yeah. Not that she has to be close to the mic to do that, but no, no. <laughs> yeah. So we are looking, um, at chapters nine and 10 this week. Um, two very different chapters. One chapter nine is kind of, uh, like a, like a meta, a narrative, uh, an analysis of what's going on. And then chapter 10 is back into visions. So where do we want to where do we want to begin? Take it away. Well, I'd like to begin with her first statement, where she says, "I am not good because of this showing, but only if I love God better. And in so much as you love God better, it is more to you than to me." And it just struck me this time, after many times of reading these revelations of divine love this idea of loving god better and i'm wondering what people how do you take that like what does it mean to love god better or how does it happen to love god better how does that come about uh for me, so I'm not only am I joining the two of you in working through um, the revelations here, but I'm also in my um, in my spare time digging into some of the writings of John of the Cross, who is uh, so forcefully emotional in his in his writings. Um, and I wonder if anyone reads John of the Cross and winds up thinking, wow, I thought I loved God, but this dude is head over heels for Jesus. Um, and you know, it kind of, it has that same, and I mean, absolutely no disrespect to him, but it has that same quality of like schoolgirl crush level obsession. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. This like all consuming God is everything. And I think, well, I I kind of give God a phone call every morning and every evening with the offices. And occasionally through the day, I think, oh, look, a beautiful bird. Thanks be to God that there are beautiful birds. But then I read something, you know, like um, 
the spiritual canticle, which is what I'm reading now. And there's just this like, this definitely a next level that I am not approaching of this inner drive to let God be everything, everything. Yeah. I think, um, loving God for, uh, Julian is this intense longing. Um, and later it's, uh, actually chapter 10. This might actually be something that ties the two chapters together. Um, but she conveys this idea that the grace of our desire for God flows out of the grace of his revelation to us. Um, so as far as how does loving God better happen, um, I think, I think it springs from this special grace of God revealing himself to us. Um, not necessarily in the extravagant manner that he does to Julian, but um, out of a encounter with God, we kind of get a taste and want more. You know, I um. You give a mouse the cookie, you know, and you, you, the, that sets off, um, a sort of ravenous desire that God gives us a taste. Right. And by his grace, that just sharpens our appetite for more. So it's as much about knowing God as it is about just, I mean, the love comes from the knowing. The loving comes from the knowing. Is that what we're saying? I think so. Yeah. Okay. I think so, too. I think so, too. She seems to imply that God is always willing to be known. Yeah. And it is we who fear that maybe that it could be too much for us. We could turn into John of the cross and then what good would we be to anybody? (laughs) Or how would we, you know, get our floors scrubbed if we're John of the cross. And for Julian, she seems to think she seems to be saying that, we have to always be open to God's grace and that we always have to be searching. And this does tie into chapter 10 very well too. We always have to be searching and searching and searching for God, for, for more of God, for the knowledge of God. And that's, that's the goal. You know, that's why she's, that's why she's conveying these showings. Um, in the margins by this section, I have a quote written, Theo, you might know them from Twitter. Um, we were having dinner one time and they were talking about, uh, wonder working icons in the Eastern Orthodox church. And they said, 
said this little bit, the miracle is in the conversion that comes from the wonder, not the wonder itself. That it's, Hmm. that it is the wonder of revelation sparking desire in our hearts for God that is the miracle. That's, That's the whole, that's the whole, that's what this all is pointing towards and working towards is kindling desire in our hearts. Um, and that was a, uh, that was a powerful way for me to think about it, that this, the revelations that God gave Julian and her intention in passing them on to us ultimately has very little to do with the revelations themselves, I think. It's more to do with urging us, exhorting us to love God and to, to, to desire to behold God. Yep. So a couple of things all pulled themselves together in, in my mind about the, the, the cyclical nature of this. We, we um, love God more by by willing to love God, and then God reveals God's self to us just enough to pull us further in, which then is met with another round of the commitment of our will to love. And so it's a, a cycle. And so the the things that pulled themselves together were um, Mark chapter 9, when uh, the father of the boy who Jesus has just healed says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, that there's this cyclical nature that the, the seed of belief um, brings about a desire to move into a deeper level of belief. Help my unbelief is really just a, a, a plea to deepen what's begun. Um, and then also Psalm 63, which which in our the spiritual communion uh, right that we have uh, mm-hmm. for for Julian um, Oblates and Associates is um, it's the psalm that is the preparation for spiritual communion psalm, and it begins, O God, you are my God, eagerly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a barren and dry land where there is no water. But then immediately, just a few verses later in chapter, f- in verse 5 of that, my soul is content. So there's this both, like, I desire you, I seek you, I thirst for you, I hunger for you, and yet already I'm content. Mm-hmm. And then that reminded me of Augustine's Confessions. The whole first book of it is this, like, lengthy prayer between Augustine and God. And Augustine has said, like, I was, says, you know, I was searching for you. You are already with me. You already loved me, and I was looking for you, and the more that I saw the clues of your presence, the more I desired to run after you. And so there's this, like, cyclical nature, like once you see, once you taste a little bit of the water that springeth up to eternal life, you know, it, it it's... um it it slakes the thirst, but it doesn't make you less thirsty. You know what I mean? Like it mm-hmm. it yes. quenches the thirst, mm-hmm. but you still want to drink from it. Mm-hmm. Um, which may make 
you know, that metaphor of the of Jesus being the living water that he shares with the Samaritan woman at the well, um, it probably breaks down at that point because if you drink regular water, eventually you're done drinking water. But the more of Jesus you drink, um, the more you want. Yeah. Uh, so all those things kind of came together that there's this like mm-hmm. that that our normal our the mortal pattern of our bodies is that when we desire something that eventually we hit our limit. Well now I'm thinking about that. Is that true for everything? So I'll speak as the recovering alcoholic and it's not true for everything. I was wondering if that's where I was going wrong. I, um, and this is where I think language of idolatry is actually really powerful and useful in thinking about Hmm. at least my experience with addiction. Um, you taste and you want more and you want more and more and more, and it's never enough. Um, and the, the difference I see between that and the sort of ever-deepening thirst that God sparks in us is that with alcohol, for me, it, it was never satisfying. You know, with, with God, you are satisfied and you still want more. Right. When you're serving the false God, I mean, I... Mm-hmm. I can only think of like my addiction as service to enslavement to um, an ersatz god. Uh, and that, no matter how much you drink, you never feel satisfied. And that's, it's the cheap imitation of true worship. Because in true worship, you, you taste, you are satisfied, you are nourished. And you want more, not because there's any lack, but because there's more fullness. But when you're, when I was <laughs> enslaved to my addiction, I was constantly lacking and always wanting more because it was just this chasm inside that couldn't be filled. So this is where I I see, you know, the there is service to the true God, which is also a never-ending appetite, but one that is fueled by tasting marrow and fatness. Um, and then there's the kind of corrupted, twisted ever-deepening appetite that is caused because you're you're feeding yourself with things that cannot nourish. Right. Well, may we all taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. Amen. So, there's more in chapter 9. We've managed to make it through the first four lines. <laughs> <laughs> the profound unity that 
comes out of and also informs Julian's humility. We're not we're not having a humility episode yet, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but she, I mean, she talks about this awareness that God doesn't love her better, that she right. in herself she doesn't find her significance in herself either on merit of these showings or just in general. Um, but in this unity of love of the, of all mankind that shall be saved, uh, that is bound together by the love of the God who has created and redeems. And that that's, that's where she finds the, uh, security and depth of significance of herself it's in that unity so that um that humility i think goes back to what we see her modeling herself after the blessed virgin this smallness and in that smallness finding exaltedness the smallness of herself as an individual and in that smallness as an individual coming to understand her unity with all mankind that shall be saved. And she says, for in mankind that shall be saved is contained all. So this, this littleness is a path to exaltedness. That's really beautiful. So what am I to do with the fact that I have trouble loving some other people. Well, there's love and then there's love. And so if you believe that God created all of us, all of creation, everything and everyone, then you have to know that God loves all of us in a way that we can't imagine i mean we the, people talk about oh it's like your mother loving you or your father loving you or your it's not like that at all in my opinion it's an entirely different love it's the love that that, that prompted creation and everyone is created and therefore god loves everyone because of that creation and therefore everyone because of that creation is desperate to love god back and must just by default love everyone and in fact everything else in creation because we are all one and there's no denying that oneness. So if you don't like somebody, for heaven's sakes, that's an entirely different chapter. That's an entire, that's a tangent that's off onto the side of everything. You still know that that person was created by God who loves you and loves that person, no matter who that person is, even if that person is someone that you disagree with on every single thing who has led people into the wrong paths, no matter what, God still loves that person. And you must too. You do. You do, whether you think you do or not. You do by loving God and by loving creation, you automatically do love that person. 
Lord, I beloved, help my unbeloved. Wait, I'm trying to. <laughs> I need to work on that. But there's so so there's a a, a Christian orientation that differs from, I suppose, a non-Christian orientation. I'm thinking this as I go. But it's possible to not love somebody or to say, you know, I hate that person, I don't like that person, um, because you think that that person is unlovable. But from a Christian perspective, if somebody appears to be unlovable, then, then I have to come to the realization that that sense of unlovableness is my problem, not that person's problem. Yes. That if I find somebody unlovable, it's because I don't yet have enough charity within my own soul to see what God sees in that person. And it has nothing to do with the objective worthiness or lovability or blessedness or goodness present in that person but the limitation lies with me and i think um in a in a more kind of secular in in a less religious uh circumstance i think it's very easy to 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 not let that blame fall within not that it needs to be about blame i'm trying to i'm i'm sketching this out as i go <laughs> um but if i strive to be like God, if I strive to follow Jesus, then I have to recognize that um, insofar as I find things and people, especially people, unlovable, especially some of the people who show up on the TV news uh, in the evening, um, those people who frustrate me in so many different ways, uh, that the work to be done is in my own heart, not necessarily in them. And there's nothing I can do about those people anyway. Like it's something that we hopefully all learn fairly early on in our Christian journey is as much as we want other people to change, it's very little we can do about how other people act. Um, and, you know, if if we wait to begin our own spiritual journeys until everyone around us starts acting perfectly, we will be waiting a very long time. Uh, indeed. Uh, what do we think of this phrase that shows up a few times in Chapter 9, where Julian talks about all mankind that shall be saved? Okay, let's deal with the the gendered language first of all. We can easily say all humankind that shall yeah. be saved. It's that phrase that shall be saved, that qualifier that I want to notice because at that time God showed her no other. Yeah. So, is Julian the universalist? Julian uses that phrase and I looked this up um in a commentary by Father John Julian. So um, it's not something that I just know. She uses that phrase 37 times in the Revelations. So it's not a small thing for her to be saying that. All that shall be saved. She doesn't... 
she doesn't she doesn't deny the possibility that somebody might not be saved but she doesn't focus on that hmm. she doesn't focus on I mean, she talks about sin a lot throughout the revelations. And in chapter 10, we'll see how she talks about um, human nature and the depravity of it, etc. But she, but she feels, she seems to feel from what I read that there is a strong possibility that everyone will be saved. Now, she's writing and talking to people through her little window at a time when the church is very, very heresy nervous. Um, and so, is she being careful? Is she guarding her statement about about this, all that shall be saved, so that she doesn't appear to be denying the idea that God is going to send some people to hell? Or is she just working on what she has been shown? And for me, she's working with what she's been shown, because I don't think Jesus showed her anything that would get her into trouble <laughs> with the church. I yeah. think that Jesus was protective of her and showed her vast arrays of people, you know, being blissful in heaven and having more glory there than we even had in Eden, that things are, you know, wonderful in the kingdom and all these people rejoicing and praising God with glory, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Jesus didn't show her anything else. And, but he didn't, he didn't say, Oh, this is this is how this is how it is for everyone. So, um, is she a universalist? Does she believe in predestination? I I don't know for sure, but I can't wait to get to heaven and ask her. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll all so find th- out one day. This is um, I actually, and this is probably a lack of charity on my part. Get very peeved by people who jump to saying she's hedging her bets um, and kind of buying credibility with the church in her time. Right. Um, My impulse is to take her at her word and say that she is genuinely holding these things together. Um, I I phrased it um, a while ago on Twitter, kind of speaking in her voice. I know this from other church. I have seen that from other Christ. I must trust that both are sound. However, that pans out. I think she's, I, I I want to read her as genuinely holding what Holy church says in, in her understanding. And also after years of contemplating these showings, holding fast to what Christ showed her. Um, I think I, I get annoyed when people jump to saying, oh, she's just, uh, this is a political rhetorical move. I, I think it's important for us to 
consider Julian here as genuinely kind of sitting in that tension. As far as universalism goes, yeah, I, my, my personal stance on it is that I have no idea. And I, I tell people this when, uh, when it comes up, um, and I think it's a bad thing in general when you run into preachers who, from the pulpit, will tell you what kind of people are going to hell. I think that's bad, you know, in those traditions where that's a big part of their preaching message. Oh, these kind of people, they're going to hell, you're going to hell, you know, whatever that is. And there are a lot of refugees in the Episcopal Church from those kind of church traditions. So I say, if it's wrong for them to say this, that, or the other kind of person is going to hell, I think it's also wrong for me to say who I think is going to heaven. That is, as scripture says, God's business. Um, And it's none of my business, and I have no idea what God intends to do with my soul or anyone else's once I die, based on uh, mercy and the, the... Teaching the teaching certainly from the Catholic wing of the church. I pray for the souls of the departed because I love them, not because I have firm opinions about where they are. You know, purgatory or whatever was Dante's Inferno the correct description of the afterlife? Who knows? But people that I know who die, I pray for them because I love them and I want what's best for them, and I trust that God will take care of whatever God needs to take care of. Um, so I feel as though that stance that I have is, um, in harmony with what Julian is saying. Like, I trust that God is going to save who God intends to save and how God does that is beyond my pay grade. I don't want anything to do with that decision-making process. I just try to live my best, um, do my best work and, uh, leave the rest of it to, the incomprehensible God. I've got enough work to do on my own soul to be worrying about other people. (laughs) What do you think of that? Well, I'm a universalist and I'm, I just think that my sense is of two things. uh, And this is overly simplistic, but God made us, and God loves us, and God's purpose has got to be for us to all be together with him in his kingdom, A. And then B, um, whatever whatever we draw onto ourselves through our misdeeds or our lack of love or whatever can certainly be worked out in this life. and beyond but it's and this is david bentley hart but it's very hard for me to conceive of any sin that i could commit in my lifetime which would merit eternal punishment i mean the 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 ratio is just is is very very skewed so it's just, I don't think that God made us to lose us. I think that the plan is that we will all 
we will all find ourselves in God's kingdom in one way or another. But I don't have any idea how that will be affected. And, you know, and, and I'm with you, Chris, it's, it's absolutely beyond my, um, beyond my pay grade. And having been brought up as I was brought up <clears throat> with thinking about sin and worrying about hell every single day of my life and every single night being afraid to go to sleep because I was afraid I would die in my sleep and then end up in hell. Um, I'm, I, I am just shed of that, I guess, for myself and, and for everyone. I think I will, um, I think all I would preach from a pulpit, say, would be a sure hope that God will make all things new. Um, I have a surprisingly specific kind of conception. I, I'm similarly influenced Marguerite by David Bentley Hart, who I know is a divisive figure, but um, I think is spot on in a lot of ways on universalism. Um, I, I would probably describe myself as a kind of purgatorial universalist in a sense of, I, I am keenly aware that when I come face to face with God, there will be things that need to be burned away. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's sort of the frame in which I kind of conceive of my universalism, but I'm not so confident in my universalism that I um, that I would posit it as something sure. I don't know how God will make all things new. And I think this is my that statement is maybe an analog to all shall be well. Um, I don't know how God will make all things new. I don't know if that will involve hell, an empty hell, a full hell. Um, but I do feel that we have a sure hope and warrant from the scriptures that God will make all things new. And that is, that is what I'm willing to preach with confidence. With an, a hopefully humble uncertainty about what that plays out like. The church needs more preachers who are comfortable with saying, I don't know. <laughs> um, do we want to crack on to uh, chapter 10? Yeah. We can at least start. There's a lot yeah. in chapter 10. We there might is not a lot. get through all of chapter 10 with whatever time we have remaining. I didn't take a note of when we actually started recording, but. Um, I think at least um, going so far as to say, um, I, I, read, I raised this at the beginning of the episode, this, for I sought him and still sought him, for we are now so blind and so unwise that we never see God. 
until he of his goodness shows himself to us. And when we see anything of him by grace, then are we moved by the same grace to try with great desire to see him more perfectly. This, I think, ties back to the loving God more perfectly. Um, and it, my um, having been brought up in kind of hyper-Calvinist circles, I immediately want to like try to plot where this lies on predestination and free will. And I think that's the wrong way of thinking about this. Um, there, there may be good academic merit in pursuing those questions, but I think they're spiritually dangerous, um, at least as a frame to understand Julian. Um, I see her here kind of just painting a, a picture of compassionate self-revelation. Um, you know, the oblate rule talks about, um, I think it's towards the end of the rule, talking about learning to see God's love and live our lives in response to that love. Um, and I see the seed of that vocation here, that it is, we are held in God's gaze we ask the grace to see that and to then live our lives in response to that with ever greater desire to see God, this deepening desire to behold. Um, and so that's what I have to tell myself when I, when I catch myself jumping into this kind of, uh, not that analysis is bad, but jumping into this analytic mode of saying, well, well, how does this line up with Augustine versus Calvin versus all that? Um, I think I need for my own health as I read this to set that aside and say, what Julian is showing me here is God revealing himself and in that revelation, moving us to desire him. One thing that she says in chapter 10, and this might be my favorite, one of my favorite lines in the whole, in the whole series. She says, and thus I saw him and I sought him and I possessed him and I lacked him. And this is and should be our ordinary behavior in this life as I see it. So that what has blessed her is how she saw God and then how she didn't see God and how she wanted God and, but God wasn't there, how she had God. And then she didn't have God. She or both at the same time. I mean, I'm not even, I don't want to put it on, on a timeline, but this, um, this wanting this, this yearning, this seeking is so important to her as she puts it. And it's, it might even be better than achieving the goal because we can never completely, I mean, I I don't know what it is about seeing God that everybody wants to see God 
but yet they're afraid to see God because then they would die like, um, you know, being in the, in the rock, Moses, you know, rock of ages, um, hiding in the mountain rock where God would. So, so it's the, it's the yearning for God that is the blessing, you know, every, every, angst that we feel every lack that we feel every every time that we feel that we have nothing that is god's way of blessing us and encouraging us and every time we feel that we don't have god or that god isn't there enough for us or that we are weak in prayer that that is that's god's way of blessing us a lot of people would not agree with that i know that no i'm just reminded you you said something like this to me on twitter um i think it was about a month ago i was talking about feeling dryness and frustration and you were the one who encouraged me to see that very frustration as a blessing um that 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 awareness that then yearning for that f- frustration to be resolved that yearning is a blessing um which i see reflected in what you just said and that's what i meant that was a that was really helpful um ended up writing about it to my formator oblate formator um, at length, mentioning it in my report, um, huh. that it is that it is the yearning that is the gift. Julian picks that up a few lines later, because he wills, because God wills, that we believe that we experience him constantly, although we imagine that it is but little. So, there's a, a chain there. He wills mm-hmm. that we believe that we experience him constantly. I think because the experience is the fundamental underlying reality. Yeah. And God's desire is that we should be aware of it. Yes. It would be very different if it was because he, because God wills, that we experience him constantly. Mm-hmm. The statement in this is that we already do, but we don't believe it. Right. And God yeah. wants us to believe it, that every moment, right now as the three of us are talking, we are each experiencing God. Um, and you, dear listener, who's listening to this podcast right now, are experiencing God. And that goes back to, you were talking about Augustine and this kind of cyclical yearning and realizing that God is already satisfying that yearning. Um, this is, I think she's, she's pointing to this. Um, the yearning is always already fulfilled. We are already experiencing God. And God yearns that we see that and yearn still further. But then there's 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 a difference between believing 
XYZ and experiencing XYZ, isn't there? So to me, it seems as though, so because he wills that we believe that we experience him, that the level of belief is a level of kind of conscious awareness, conscious consent. So it's, it's not simply that I should live in a state of experiencing God, but I need to live in a state of believing that I am experiencing God, that I need to be aware that I, I need to, um, insofar as I'm a conscious being who's aware of my surroundings, that that awareness needs to stretch to the experience of being in the presence of God. That it's not simple. I mean, I already am experiencing God, but that's not enough, or God wouldn't will for more. That that part of my transformation is the transformation of my belief, so that it's constantly aware of and consenting to and attentive to the experience of God's presence. Does that make any sense, or am I just spewing a bunch of words at the moment? I think it makes sense. I think that the way contemplation is described in the in the Oblate Manual is that you carry a contemplative awareness throughout everything that you do your your entire day, your entire life, morning, noon, and night. That that is that awareness follows you even if you're even if you're doing doing some you know menial job raking the lawn or anything like that that you have an awareness a contemplative awareness of god's presence a contemplative awareness and experience i guess that that's what that that's what that is that that never goes away that that's the goal of contemplation i mean not that you know, not that that's just something you can snap your fingers and get. <clears throat> but that's where, that's where I think prayer is headed. Hmm. She continues, and by this belief, it's the belief, not the experience again. It's the belief, by this belief, he causes us evermore to gain grace. Because, again, he wishes to be seen and he wishes to be sought. He wishes to be awaited and he wishes to be trusted. So that echoes the same things that you pointed out, Marguerite, mm-hmm. um, where Julian says, I saw him and I sought him and I possessed him and I lacked him. That these things that she's doing where she's fulfilled and she's not fulfilled, she sees and she's looking, she has and she's not yet having God all God wants those things. God wants to be pursued um, and pursues us in response. But there's something so, but the grace comes through the formation of belief that there's something that already exists, but is hidden and it becomes unhidden somehow, at least from my perspective, 
by altering, by modifying, transforming my belief. And if I can somehow change what my belief is, that I'll be able to see what's already there. Do you know what I mean? And that's kind of this contemplative spirit at every moment of the day. If if I am washing or uh, cleaning the toilet, which actually I'm, is this afternoon's chore, I clean the toilet one way or the other. But if I clean the toilet with an awareness that Jesus is also present, well, it's a very different, a very different experience for me. <laughs> the toilet I'm, gets cleaned one way or the other. But I can clean the toilet prayerfully or not prayerfully, aware of the presence of God or not aware of the presence of God. Yes. I have hesitance around um, placing the agency in changing the belief in our hands. So if and I might be just latching on to your, your phrasing of if I can change my belief. Um, I, Is this your latent Calvinism thing kicking in? <laughs> I recognize that God wants to, to, from God's perspective, God wills that my belief should be changed. Mm-hmm. But from my perspective, I think that that I have a certain amount of control over my own will um, in terms of practices and and at least desiring for myself <laughs> to be different. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Um, that the force that actually does the transformation might not be within my power, but I don't believe that I'm completely powerless in the situation, even if it's just enough for me to say, like, uh, I I will crack open the door and let the floodwaters in. At least I open yeah. the door, you know? Yeah. Whether the floodwaters are coming in or not, I consented to to let the action in. And maybe that's, you know, in, in the balance of how we cooperate in the spiritual work with God, maybe we contribute a tenth of one percent. And God does the whole rest of it. But that's still, I mean, the bit that I can do. Yeah, I I definitely agree. Um, I think what I'm wanting to hold on to, and this may just be as simple as reminding myself that that response is enabled by a prevenient grace. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's... um, that's something I need to remind myself of that it is it, it is by grace that I'm it, it is a grace that I'm able to respond to, you know, like the the locus, the the origin point of this change isn't me. I cooperate with it. I I have a role in its working itself out. Um an important one, though maybe ultimately a tenth of a percent. Um, but that it's 
the source of the transformation is God. Does that resonate? Yeah, I'm fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah, it all starts with God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's less my latent Calvinism and more the uh, the choir of Calvinist critics that I'm constantly trying to answer that have been embedded in my consciousness. That's latent Calvinism. True, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I never went through that phase. Um, but I have actually seriously kind of committed some portion of my brain in, in um, uh, later on this year to learning more about Calvinism because it does not make sense to me, but some people that I know and love very dearly are very committed Calvinists, and I want to understand their world. Um but that's, you know, the, a different podcast entirely. <laughs> um, Should we wrap it up here? Yeah. Yeah, before we, before we get into the, the next showing. Yeah. I think that deserves some teaching, of, uh, some treatment in itself. Yeah. Any last thoughts, Marguerite? Um, uh, uh, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> Any last thoughts, Jan? I don't think so. Okay. Just wanting to want God more. Well, maybe we will seek God and continue to see just enough to keep on running. Thanks, friends. Thank you. We'll talk, Thank you. We'll talk uh, next week, I guess, unless something comes up. Sounds good. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode. To find out more about Dame Julian, the Revelations of Divine Love, the Order of Julian of Norwich, or us, check the show notes to this episode. You can reach me, Chris Arnold, the producer of this series, at Apple Tree Pods on Twitter, or on Facebook, you can find the page Apple Tree Podcasts. That's all for now. We'll talk to you soon. May God bless you.